Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I will be reading scripture from Genesis 2, verses 15 to Genesis 3, verse 7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature was their name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and clothed in place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was one of the more crafty than any wild animals the Lord God had made. He had sent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit from the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. It's really good to be with you. Um, If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dave, and I'm on staff here as well. My I serve as the the teaching and site pastor, and so what that essentially means is that VJ and I uh, rotate back and forth, switching back and forth between uh, here and then Bolton Alliance Church, and then uh, the rest of the time I spend overseeing overseeing, uh, the congregation up there in Bolton that we're in a one-year partnership with. So if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, I look forward to doing that very soon. Just wanted to let you know who I was. I'm clearly not the guy who was preaching last week. Some of you be aware of that, but just in case you're new, you never know. So, uh, okay, question. Uh, how many of you enjoy Disney movies? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. I have to like, have a bit of a confession here, and that is, um, I don't know if I'm a Disney fanatic, or I don't know where I fall in that spectrum. I, I probably don't really fit into the fanatic category because I don't have like collector's items, anything. I don't know a lot of the rare facts. I mean, if we're playing Trivia Pursuit and Disney questions come up, I'm going to get them every time. But, but beyond that, I don't know all these little details. One thing I do know is that if you were to take one of the Disney masterpiece movies, okay, right, these cartoons came out, you know, uh, up until 2000, but any of the ones specifically from the 80s or the 90s, you put that in the VHS player if you can find one, and we watch that together, I'm going to end up crying. 
at one point in the movie. And I don't know what happened to me. I don't know if it's like fatherhood or I don't know if it's just God doing work in my life where he's softening me up or what the deal is. But like these movies come on and like three quarters of the way through or just before it wraps up, I find myself crying because I'm so tied up in the stories, right? And so as a young boy watching these movies, my mom told me that um, I actually wore out the 101 Dalmatians VHS because I watched it so many times it just stopped working, right? And they only release those movies every 10 years and that's their whole gimmick and to keep, uh, you know, the generations buying the thing. But, but beyond that, I remember watching movies like Aladdin and I'm like, I just want to go rob, steal some bread. I just want to do that. Like, because it's so, but there was something about these stories and it was particularly the villains in the stories that caught my attention because first of all, they're terrifying. And as I'm watching some of these movies back with my young sons now, I'm like, these are actually really twisted people that they're putting in front of the kids. At the time, I didn't know it. But anyways, here we are. And, and these villains, there was something about them and what they added to the plot or to the subplot of the movie that was playing out to the story that I was like, whoa, there's something about this. And so if you take for consideration the movie The Lion King, right? In my mind, one of the greatest maybe movies of all time, not just Disney movies, not just cartoons, but like this epic story, okay? By the way, I'm about to spoil how this movie goes, but that is on you because it's like a 25-year-old movie. And I don't even feel bad about it at all. And so in this movie, it opens up with this incredible scene where all these animals are coming from all over the place, and there's this monkey, and he's holding up a lion cub, right? And that's Simba. Mufasa is the father, Mufasa is the king, and the celebration of all the animals is that here is Simba, heir to the throne. When Mufasa's time is done, Simba will be king. The very next scene opens up with who? Scar, the villain. And there's the development of this incredible subplot, which is Scar and his desire to be on the throne. He wants to be the Lion King, and he sees that his brother Mufasa, he doesn't think that he's doing a good enough job as the king and that he should be taken out. And then this little lion cub comes on the scene, and he hates Simba. And this whole backstory develops where Scar is plotting and he is willing to do whatever it takes to take over the throne. And so as the movie continues, we see that Simba is beginning to grow up and Scar doesn't like that. And so what he does is he actually stages Mufasa's murder. Can you believe this? These are lions, okay? Very intelligent. And he plots Mufasa's murder. And so he coordinates these hyena buddies to start this stampede. And he makes sure that Simba's down in the valley where these antelopes are going to run through. And then as they're coming, he thinks that Simba's going to get killed. But it turns out better when Mufasa comes to rescue him. He actually has a chance to kill Mufasa. And then if you remember, after the stampede has come by, he goes down there and he says, Simba, this is all your fault, right? And then what does he say? He says, run away, Simba. Run away and never come back. And he convinces this child, th well, this cub, that the murder of the death of his father was completely his fault. So Mufasa's dead. Simba runs away. Scar goes to the Pride Lands and says, they're all dead. I'm the king now. And he wrongfully takes over the throne. As the movie goes on and on and on, well, we know that Simba's not dead. And eventually he shows up and there's this epic battle. I think there's a picture. You might have seen a picture uh, of this epic battle that takes place on Pride Rock. And like in classic Disney way, there's like, it's dark. It's about to start raining. There's lightning. Something's going to catch on fire because that's going to terrorize all the animals. And as they're fighting this out, this incredible picture of the rightful king fighting to get rid of the one who has wrongfully taken the throne is being played out before our eyes. And, and there's something about that storyline, not just in The Lion King, but there's something about that storyline in general, which I think is so engaging for us because it's actually, in a one way or another, it's kind of like the human story. 
There's a struggle for us to be in charge. We want to be the ones who are actually king. And in our own way, we will do whatever it takes to have the control, to have the power, and say that I am the king, I am the queen, that is who I want to be, no matter what the cost might be. If I'm honest with myself, I want to be king. I don't really want to fight a lion and win the pride lands. I don't really care about that. But I want to be king of at least certain things in my own life. I want to have the final say on certain things that I don't have to submit to anybody else. I can say to people, I'm a grown man. I do not need to take instructions from you. I will figure this out for myself. And this plays itself out in so many different ways. Maybe like take stock, for example, of how this past week went for you. Did you find yourself at any time or another rolling your eyes when somebody else said something to you that you thought was just ridiculous? Right? Did you find yourself scoffing at them and saying, come on, this guy again, right? Or this girl. Did you call anybody a dummy this week? In your mind, out loud, perhaps you're like, it wasn't dummy, but I can't say that word in church, <laughs> right? Maybe something way worse than that. All of these are like, are, 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 um, all of these come as the result of us saying, I'm, I'm smarter than, than them. If, if only I was in charge. And we sometimes say it as explicitly as that. There's this whole armchair quarterback thing, right? So we sit watching the news and we get the reports on what politicians are saying and doing. And we're like, can you believe these idiots running our country? If only, if only what? Like if only you were in charge? Or if only I was in charge, and the truth is, I like find myself saying, if only I had like an hour to run the country, just how much better we could make it, right? And some of you have gotten to know me a little bit. You're like, oh Lord, please make it not so, right? <laughs> and we do this all the time, whether it be with politicians or principals or teachers or, or, or bosses or dare I say pastors. Who is he or she to tell me how I ought to live my life? We, we think these things, and all of that comes as a result of what? This ongoing human plot line, which is the fight in our own life to be king. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. I want to have ultimate authority. I don't want to submit to anybody. I want them to submit to me. But the reality is, and this is the tension that we all feel, which is why we love all these plot lines, the tension we feel is that even if right now, in this moment, you declared to yourself, I am king of my life, or you said, I am queen of my life, you know what the reality is? You still have to pay bills. You still have to submit to the laws that are around us, and you can try to avoid those and ignore those for a little while, but if you get caught, you can't say, I'm the king, though. Like, it's not going to work. You're not going to get out of that. I can declare kingship over my home, over my wife, and over my kids, and I can say, I'm the king, and I command you not to get up until 8 in the morning. They're going to get up whenever they want. I don't have that control. And so that's the tension that we feel, and those are kind of trivial, but in many ways, this plays out in even bigger and stronger ways, this tension that I want to be king, but, but I, I, I'm not king. I want to be queen, but I'm not queen. And sometimes, even though we know it's not true, we, we fall in and we submit to the pride or the foolishness in our own thoughts, and we, we think that we actually are in charge of all these things. And we'll find ourselves saying things or in conversations or trying to make a difficult, big decision, and we're not even sure. We've weighed out the pros and the cons. We've had the opinions of others. In a few weeks, we're going to look at the importance of community and relationship in the midst of, uh, of wisdom and making decisions. And sometimes we do that and we hear things out and we say, you know what, I'm going to go the complete opposite direction of what I've been told to do because I'm in control and you know what, at least I decided for myself. Even though we are kind of not totally convinced of it ourselves. All of this is the human story. This is the human condition. If you were with us last week or if you're following along online or, or wherever, Vijay um, introed this whole series and essentially got to this point where he was saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is wisdom personified. 
And so we need to pay attention to who Jesus is because of how he lives his life. If he is wisdom, if he is God who's come to live on earth, we ought to pay attention to that. But he, he, paid, um, he, he emphasized from John chapter 1 where he said, uh, in the beginning, right? And he talked about the creation. And he said the logos. And as he talked about logos, he was saying that God in his creation, as he created, used wisdom and used knowledge. And, and all of this actually was, was demonstrated through power. So if we think about it, it's not just God is infinitely wise, but God must also be infinitely powerful because when he opens his mouth, when he decided that he was going to create, he opens his mouth with wisdom, and as a result, things actually were created. So there's power connected to that. We have to pay attention not to the power, point, the power side of it um, entire, or completely, but I also want us to think about this wisdom part of it. If God, who is infinitely wis- wise, created... That means that what he created was made in a wise and logical way. It's not as if God picked up a cosmic pair of dice off a cosmic table and blew on them and shook them up and rolled them. And however they turned out, he decided, okay, that's, I guess, how we're going to put some of these things over here and some people over here and some trees over there. No, no, no. In his wisdom, in his knowledge, in his perfection, he created in a way that was exactly perfect according to his plan, meaning that everything that was created had an exact purpose a perfect purpose, and was in perfect relationship to who he as king and creator was. Everything had its place and every place had its thing, or whatever that saying is, you know, what is it? whatever it is. Everything had its purpose and had its place. It wasn't made completely at random. And so what this means is that as he created the heavens and the earth and even the stars and even the sun, and as he created humanity, Adam and Eve, and as he created all of these animals, all of these things that were created were all in a sense in submission to his kingship, if you want to think of it that way, okay? God is the creator. God is God. God is the creator. God is wise. And in a sense, he is ruler over all of these things. And so when he created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he gave them things to do, right? He gave them um, the responsibility of naming the animals and he gives them the responsibility of taking care of the actual garden. At that point, before sin had taken place, work was actually a good thing. And now because of sin, we, many of us are, we hate work and we just think it's a bother and we actually work to never have to work again kind of thing. That's a complete switch. We were created to work, okay? And all of these things existed. They're all naked and unashamed and they're all multiplying and being fruitful and all those kinds of things. And as they're living out this life, doing what they were meant to do under their king in heaven, they find themselves one day faced with this decision that will have an incredible implication for their life. And so Camille read this for us earlier, but I'm going to read part of it again just to refresh us with this story. Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. You'll know good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and that it was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And there it is. That is the thing that took place which directly correlates to why every single one of us today has this inward desire to be king. 
because for that moment in history, Adam and Eve, who were living in perfect relationship with God, made a decision, and for that moment, they believed that they were actually wiser than the true king in heaven, that they were wiser than God. Because any decision to go in the opposite of a rule that has been put in front of you is to say, I know better than the person who set that rule. And maybe I'll submit to them for some things or I'll listen to them for other things, but not for all of it. And so Adam and Eve made this decision. And because Adam and Eve are our spiritual uh, grandparents, when they sinned, when they went against God, and I'll define sin in a moment, but when they went against God, when they made this decision that, okay, he did tell us not to, but it does look pretty good. So maybe what the enemy is tempting us with is actually true. When they even started to work that out, in their hearts, they were already set in the direction of opposing God. And as they did that, as they went against him, as they ate from that fruit, as they broke God's laws, they said, I'm wiser than he is. In that moment, they experienced the beginning of the consequence that God said they would experience, which is death. Don't eat it. Don't even touch it. Because if you do, then you're certainly going to die. Now, they didn't drop dead, but they experienced something that was difficult for them to understand and explain in the moment. They began to experience um, a, a spiritual death. They began to experience spiritual brokenness. And so that's why they all of a sudden realized, hey, you're naked. I'm naked. This is weird. And they go and they cover themselves up with fig leaves. That's all they knew how to do to cover themselves up, right? And so because of their sin, because of their disobedience, this thing, sin, took um, it's pl- er, in- infected, rather, all of creation and all of the world, which means that later on, Adam and Eve, as they got older, would actually physically die. So there's a spiritual death, which looks like, which is a separation from God because he is the giver of spiritual life and physical life. And because of disobedience to him, there's also this spiritual death, living in the consequences, the shame, the guilt, the separation from him, not having the goods of the garden because they were actually cast out of the garden later. And then there's also this spiritual death, or physical death, rather, that they experience. Why? Because God is the giver of life and he's wise, which means that a choice to go against him is to choose death and to choose foolishness. So Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so like I said, God is the giver of life and he is eternally wise, infinitely wise. And so to live according to his ways is to live, is to actually live and to have life and to also live a life that is wise. But to turn against him is to live this life of death and foolishness, right? And so sin is a word I, I brought up before. And it's a word that we've heard sometimes, but, but maybe we wonder what it is. I think that in understanding it, even in a, in a simple sense, is, is vital for understanding how this whole uh, faith in Jesus thing works. And so I've defined it in a really simple way. Um, Sin is choosing to go against God, which in turn breaks his heart, kills us, and hurts those around us. Sin is choosing to go against God. So Adam and Eve did what? They didn't follow his command. They chose to go another way. They chose for themselves. What happened in that moment? I believe that before God wanted to slam his hand down and condemn them or judge them, that his heart was truly broken. That's why when he comes back into the garden, if you remember how the story goes, uh, God says, Adam, Eve, where are you? Right? He doesn't come, he doesn't blow them up from a distance. He comes, he says, where are you? Because he's a relational God who cared about them, who walked with them in the garden, however that played out, this beautiful, perfect harmony, and he comes, and his heart is broken. It killed them in, in, in a couple of different ways. There's a spiritual death that they experienced, but there's also the entrance of, of death in all its forms, brokenness in all its forms to all of humanity, to all of the world, right? 
And it hurt those around them. At the time, they just so happened to be the only two people. But if we want to think for a moment of the animals, God sacrificed an animal, the first death that ever took place, uh, the first physical death, spiritual death, Adam and Eve, the first death, but the first physical death, this animal, the blood being shed to cover up their sin and to cover up their guilt. Obviously foretelling a story of Jesus whose blood would be shed later on. And then from that, there's this uh, pain and and difficult and, and, and death that impacts everyone around us. In our own lives, it's the same thing, isn't it? I have a choice before me. Do I follow God in this or do I go my own way? When I go my own way, I turn my back on him and I break his heart because he's my loving father, right? And this thing is actually going to begin to kill me. We all know that when we've sinned, when we've gone against him, when we've, when we've hurt someone else, when we've broken a part of a relationship with somebody, we feel something deep inside us and we just don't have any, any resolve about it, right? That's the inward killing of it. Maybe it's a different kind of thing. Maybe it's a, a, a thing that you choose to ingest that goes against the way God instructs us to take care of our bodies and that actually has an inward effect of physically actually killing us. But I'm talking about the way that sin kills our soul in a sense. And, and sometimes we get so caught up in choosing our own way because we believe I am the king and I've made these decisions and I'll live with the consequences, but at least it was me. Nobody told me how to live. I decided for myself. And what happens is we begin to hurt everyone around us and we're not even aware of the collateral damage that's being played out. And so this sin is, is death. This sin is destructive. All of this because it's any sin is a choice to go against God who is the wise king, the giver of life and wisdom. And so some of you might be asking the question, well, what's going on here? Like, why on earth, if God wanted us to live a life of wisdom and a life submitted to him, why would he even put that tree in the garden? Why did he put it there? Like, why was there even this potential? Why was there this possibility of temptation even put before them? If he, if he didn't put that there, then they could have lived this life. But because he did, it actually gave the enemy an opportunity. It gave him something to twist and contort. The truth on one land is that even if there wasn't that tree, the enemy would have figured out another way. But because it was, my actual belief is that God put the tree in the garden to prove that it is possible to live a life in complete submission to God. But in our freedom, we can choose to go against him. That's where the choice for all of us actually lies. We don't have an actual tree necessarily that we're instructed not to eat from, but there's so many things in our lives where we're caused on a regular basis to make this decision. Will I submit to God and have life and choose wisdom? Or I pretend to be my own king or think I'm my own king and in doing so choose foolishness and death. And so when we turn our backs from God, we are essentially saying to him, I am a wiser king than you. I am actually God. I know better than you. And this happens on a regular basis because we sing songs like Be Thou My Vision where we talk about him being the ruler of all or we use words about him being sovereignly in control and God, there's nothing you don't know and we honor you and we worship you and we praise your name because we can never run away from, where could I go to get away from your spirit? Nowhere. If I'm up, there you are. If I'm down, there you are. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves making decisions where we disrespect our spouse or a coworker or, or, or we sin against our own bodies or whatever it is, our kids and, and all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, well, I'm in all that, but not right now. We do this all the time. We make this decision and we say, I am more of a king, a wiser king than him. And the reality of this, the truth of this in a biblical sense is that this actually becomes the narrative of scripture. This becomes the, one of the key concepts, one of the key plot lines in all of the narrative of the entire Bible. This idea of trusting God and obeying him and receiving blessing and having life or choosing f- to live for self and experiencing um, destruction and death. And this storyline goes on and on and on and on and on and on for generations. 
And the way that God begins to work in the middle of this, right? Because going, even when we go against him, his heart is broken and he wants to see us reconciled and made right with him, at peace with him in a relationship. What he does is he chooses to raise up individual leaders, men, then, then, then kings, then priests, and then all these different leaders. And each one of them, as he raises them, them up, their purpose is to represent his godly kingship to the people on earth. Because if we're honest, we need like flesh and bones. We need a person we can relate with to understand uh, God in a, in a sense. We need that, right? That's kind of how we've been designed. And so God raises these people up and he says, hey, okay, king or okay, priest or okay, uh, Moses leader, whatever person it is, as you go and lead, I want you to lead in, uh, by living out the values that you know I, God, your actual king, stand for. That means you go and you be people that are holy. And you go and you be people that are, that are life-giving and peaceful and don't go to war. You do these things. You live for me above all else instead of living for yourself. And what happened was all these kings and priests and leaders all lived and led. What happened? One after another, after another, after another, they all decided for themselves, I am wiser than God. I am a better king than he is. I'm going to do it my own way. And as a result, they themselves end up dead. Uh, their people end up dead. Armies and other nations come in and take them over. And you get to this place, if we fast forward to Judges chapter 21, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And what the writer is actually giving us there is this sympathetic statement. He's saying they don't know what to do without a king or a priest or any leader. And all of these ones that have led that were meant to reflect and demonstrate the kingship of God, all of them fell short and they didn't know what to do. So they just did what was right in their own eyes which is going in circles and making decisions for themselves. And you can imagine the damage that comes from that. As a result, the, the community, as a, the, the people group, experienced a, a significant destruction and they diminished as a people. They were taken over by other countries. And so they get to this point where they come to Samuel now and, and they get to Samuel and Samuel's this guy who speaks to God on behalf of the people and has these incredible conversations. And the Israelites come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, you're old and your sons are terrible leaders. We need you to go to God and ask him to appoint another king for us. And, and when Samuel hears this, he goes, you're not even understanding. Even if we got you another king, you're not understanding that God is the actual king and that we're going to give you another leader. God's going to give you another leader and they're going to repeat. History's going to repeat itself. You're not going to submit to them. You're going to overthrow them, whatever. It's going to be the same old thing. And they say, yeah, yeah, Samuel, whatever. We want a new king because we want to be like the other nations. Go to God and ask for a king. So God, he goes to, the king, he goes to God and he asks for a king even though he's bothered, it's his responsibility. And he goes and he prays, and here's what God says to him. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And they have done from the day I brought them up, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them, or that, let them know, what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So basically what God says is, okay, Samuel, listen, I know that you're bothered by them, but they're not really rejecting you. You're speaking on behalf of me, and every other king you've spoken on behalf of me has been rejected in their own way, and ultimately they're just rejecting me. Like God's saying, they're just rejecting me. And, and I want you to go, and I want you to tell them that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them what they want. I'm going to tell you, Samuel, where to go and find the next king, but you've got to warn them that the next king is going to be one who's going to tax them, and he's probably going to be one that leads them to war. He's going to call their firstborn sons and make them a part of his army. And he's not going to be the king they actually want. Or he's not going to be the king they actually need, even though he might seem like the king they actually want. And so what happens? 
Samuel, Samuel goes out and God points out Saul. Saul's this tall guy, st- stands like a head above every other guy. And he says, that's the guy I want you to bring as king. I want you to anoint him. And Saul is anointed as king. And it's like six chapters later <laughs> that it says that God regretted making Saul king. Because he already, right from the jump, started to take things into his own hands and not, was not a good representative of who God was, of the kingship of God, but the king, he was king of himself, thought he was more of an important or wiser king. And then after that, Samuel says, well, what do we do now? And he says, well, I'm going to send you, and you're going to go find this other guy. You're going to go to this guy, Jesse, and then you're going to talk to all his sons. And son after son after son after son after son, all these big, brawny, strong, incredible men come up. And, and, and Samuel's like, okay, well, it's got to be one of these guys, right? One of these has to be your sons, or one of these has to be the king, right? And he goes, no, 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 ask them for the other son. And then, and then the father brings out David, who's like out in the field. He's like, I have another son, but he's like a poet and he's like skinny, and he smells so bad, and he's out in the field, and then, and he's like, yeah, well, we want to see that one, because as it had been said, God said, that's the man who has a heart after my own heart, and he's anointed as king, and if we follow the storyline of David, this ultimate king in Israel, as we story, follow the storyline, what happens to him? He is a good king, until he sees a naked woman bathing across the way, and says, I want her for myself, goes and gets her, sleeps with her. She ends up having a kid, and in order to cover the whole story, he sends her husband to the front lines of the ongoing war so he can be killed and he can get away with it. And you're like, that's the king that's supposed to represent the kingship of God? But somehow, in God's mercy and grace and power and and plan, he uses David and all his brokenness and all his fallenness to eventually bring forth Jesus, the ultimate king. And throughout all of history, these kings who are upside down and backwards and broken and living for themselves and believing that they are king, God is somehow in his own way working through all of this to ultimately come to earth and say, I have always been king and now I'm going to live among you in Jesus and show you what my kingdom is really meant to be like. And that's what he does. And so Jesus comes and he spends 30 years living in obscurity, a carpenter, and then he comes on the scene And he begins to preach. And he says that Jesus traveled about from one town to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And I love that. Proclaiming the good news. He has to proclaim it. To proclaim something is not to just say it, but it's actually to take an idea or a belief or a concept and throw it out into the marketplace or economy of ideas and let that idea fight for itself in a sense. And so he walks around Israel and he proclaims these ideas about the kingdom of God and allows people to think about them and fight about them and choose what, whether or not they're going to submit to him or not. And as he's doing this, he's beginning to usher in this kingdom that was always meant to reign on earth from the very beginning. And as he's doing this, he says things that even confuse his closest disciples, right? He says that if you want to gain your life, and who doesn't want to gain life? He says, you want to gain life, lose it, give it up. Excuse me? That sounds really upside down to me. He shows us that if you want to be first, then you actually have to have this mentality of being last. He says, if you want to be the ultimate leader, then you need to be the most humble servant, And as the disciples are hearing this and as the world is hearing this, we're saying, what on earth? That is so backwards and so upside down from everything that our world values, even at the time. He says that if you want to honor God, then you need to spend time in a quiet place, in intimate relationship, just you and him, not in front of crowds of people praying and talking out loud. Don't be like those people who use lots of fancy words. Just go be on your own with him in private. What? But if I'm I'm there, no one's going to see me. how could that be better, right? He says, it's not about the fame. It's not about your fame. It's about my fame. It's about my glory, he says to us. And then Jesus says these other things like, um, 
love your enemies, which on its own is like, oh, that is hard. But then he adds this other thing. He says, and pray for them too. What? That's upside down. That's backwards. That does not make sense because at the time, and even now, he was speaking to a vengeful people. He has to say, you've heard that it was said, if somebody sins against you, you know, if somebody slaps you, slap them back. And he says, don't do that. Instead, when you get hit, turn the other cheek and let them do it again. Don't be a doormat. You have to kind of unpack a little bit of the theology and what he's trying to say there. But what he's saying is you're not supposed to be fighting back. Peter cuts off a guy's ear. Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on and says, that's not what we're about, Peter. Even to the very end, just before his crucifixion, he says, that's not what we're about. And what Jesus is doing, Jesus, God the King who's come to reign on earth, what he is doing is he is showing humanity that this is the way it was always meant to be. In Christian uh, theology, there's this concept that refers to uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom that Jesus ushered in as the upside-down kingdom. And so the idea there is like all this backward, seemingly backward language that, God, or that Jesus uses, right? He says the first will be last, leaders must be servants, the weak will be strong, uh, the rich will be poor, all these things. And you're like, what are you saying? Is this poetry or is this, is this figurative? Is this literal? What is it? And the answer is yes to all those things. And, and, and as he's ushering it in, we look at that and we say it's so upside down and it, it's so backwards. And so they say, well, this is an upside down kingdom, but I, my belief has actually shifted recently. And it's actually become now that, that the kingdom that Jesus ushers in is not an upside down kingdom. It's just that we have never seen a right side up king to recognize how a kingdom is supposed to function. Jesus is right side up. We are upside down. Jesus is forward-facing and forward-moving. We are backward-moving or stuck in our place. And this isn't just us today. This is all throughout history. God, the way that he has set up this world from chapter 3 and onward in Scripture was always trying to work in reverse, trying to flip upside down the things that God had already established and put in place. And so here's Jesus on earth living out and practicing what he's preaching us, and he's showing us if you want to live a way that is wise, if you want to live a way that is honoring to God, then, then, then follow me. I'm the king. I'm the one who's setting this world straight, bringing it back to how it was meant to be. And so if we want to live a life, if we want to live life actually <laughs> in its fullest sense, to have spiritual life, what we need to do is we need to submit to the kingship of Jesus. We need to say, Jesus, you uh, have come here and you've lived among us and you have shown us all of these things. And we, we wrestle through, okay, that, that, that kind of famous question, what would Jesus do? But it's more like, what did, what did Jesus do? How did he do it? Not just, should I imitate him, but are the things that he did for me, are the things that he showed me worth, worthy of my worship and worthy of my praise? And so there's this idea that floats around, which is like, well, Jesus, we, we want to be like him. So Jesus, I'm going to imitate you and all that you do. And as we read scripture, we see the things that he does and we, we strive to do those things as well. And, and there is an element, of course, of wanting to imitate Jesus and of needing to imitate Jesus. But, but unless we've actually submitted to his kingship and said, Jesus, I believe you are king. I believe you are the son of God. I believe you are the one who gave your life for me, that, that by faith in you, I've received the power of the Holy Spirit that it now actually enables me to do these things. We're totally missing the mark. And so what we have is people who pick and choose what they like. Well, I like a little bit of Jesus over here, and I like a little bit of Buddhism over here, and I like a little bit of this thing over here, and a little bit of that thing. And, and what I actually like the most is my own decisions, actually, by the way, because I'm king or I'm queen. And so I'm just going to live out those things more importantly than him. And what actually that means is we've missed the whole point because it begins with a submission to his kingship. And once we've submitted to him, once we see his love, once we receive his power, then we're actually enabled to go and live out the way that he's called us to live. 
to live this right-side-up kingdom in an upside-down world. An early church father said this brilliant thing which kind of marries these ideas. I don't speak Latin, so I'll just read the English part. I think you've got it on the screen. It's the best worship or service to God to imitate him who you worship. And I love that because it's this idea of, Jesus, I worship you as my king, and you are a king who is worthy of this, and now I want to be like you. Will you help me to be like you? And the beauty of it all is that Jesus is like, yes, I will help you do that. I will help you do that. And so we imitate him only because we want to usher in and see other people come to this place of, 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 of submitting to his kingship and living out his kingdom. And so maybe you're here today and you're like, okay, that's like, I don't know how I feel about this whole Jesus as king thing. I'm still not sure how I feel about all that. I just want to pose a question if you're still questioning this for yourself, is that if it's possible that Jesus may be the true king, then isn't it worth taking a bit of time to explore who he is and to get to know what this king and his kingdom is like? And so I want to encourage you, take some time this week, this afternoon, whenever you have it, to spend some time reading through scripture. And so I went ahead and did a little work for you. Apparently, the average adult can read 300 words per minute. Average adult can read 300 words per minute. And so a quick word count says that Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew being Matthew, one of his closest disciples, writes out an eyewitness account. It's about 18,000 words. It should take you about 61 minutes to read this. Okay? Mark, 11,000 words, about 40 minutes. I'll be generous, give you two extra there. Luke, 1900 and 1948, whatever, how do you say that word? 19,482 words. It's taking me about 65 minutes to get through this one sentence, apparently. Um, <laughs> it should take you an hour and a bit, and then John, about 52 minutes. And what the idea I'm getting at here is like, okay, you could go sit down and you could blaze through these, these, these eyewitness accounts. You could read them up so quickly, but, but there's an element of coming to Scripture, and if you're really saying, is this person who he says he is, is he actually king, then you're going to want to spend some time in there and make sure you're actually comprehending it. But oftentimes we believe this lie that Scripture is such a thick book, and why is it so small, and the paper so thin, and all these things, and it becomes this unsurmountable task to even open it up. And what I'm saying to you is like we probably spent at least that much time watching something on Netflix in the last couple of days alone. It is doable, friends. It is doable. We can do it. And what you're going to find, those of you who are still skeptical and searching, those of you who are, uh, have submitted to Jesus' kingship but are still in that tension every day of wanting to be your own king, what you're going to find is a king unlike any other king because the way that the story goes is we find that Jesus is the only king who is willing to get off of his own throne to come to us to make it possible for us to receive all of the riches and all of the goodness and all of the life and all of the witness that, wi wisdom that only he can bestow upon anyone. And he's the one who gives up his place to make it possible for us. Maybe you only want to read three chapters instead of all those. You should read it all, really. But the Sermon on the Mount would be a really good place for all of us to spend some time praying and meditating this week. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 2,600 words, nine minutes. <laughs> and what you're going to see there is one of the clearest laying out of the, of the kingdom of God, of the way that this world was meant to function. You're going to see him laying it all right there. And as you read through that, as you pray through that, as you reflect on that this week, I want all of us to have this mindset of saying, Jesus, you are the king, and this is what your kingdom looks like. Conform me to your will. Enable me to live this out because, Jesus, I worship you. And I know that this is worth it. And I want others to experience the same thing. And so living out this submission, as you'll see in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, means that living for God is way more important than living for self. 
Living for happiness is completely meaningless by comparison uh, to living out a life relying on God to make us holy and like him. We see that, that we are no longer the most important person, but the person right in front of us is the person who deserves all of our attention. We see all of these things. We see that instead of relying on our own selves, relying on our own bank accounts or education or anything like that, that we don't rely on those things primarily, but we trust in the promises of God that in Jesus' name we have everything we could have ever needed. All of this is the beginning of living out a wife that is wise. And my belief is that if you set out this week saying that I want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and believe that everything else will be added to me, you are going to begin to see right away that as you submit to Jesus and his kingship and live the way that he's called us, begin living out those kingdom values, you're going to see how much peace you have. You're going to see that you have fewer regrets. And you are going to say this is what wisdom is even though it seems like my whole life is different than everyone else. And so that's my challenge for us this morning, church. Is Jesus king? Yes, he is. But are we living like it or do we still believe that we belong on the throne? God in heaven, we love you. We worship you. Jesus, we confess and right now that it is so hard to trust you as the ultimate king, as the true king. And so... Jesus, my prayer is that you will, in your gracious way, continue to walk alongside us, to lead us, to reveal who you are and and your love for us and the values of your kingdom in such a way that our lives would be completely transformed from the inside out and that we wouldn't just imitate you, but that we would worship you first and foremost. We know that when we do that, you actually motivate us and empower us and give us everything we need to imitate you and to live these things out. And so God, we just pray that you would make it so with every decision, even as we leave this place, as we decide to go left or right, where we're going to eat, what we're going to say next, what we're going to watch, where we're going to go, what our priorities are going to be this week with our family or at work or at school or, or in the community, Lord, with every single one of those that you would put and press on us this, this prayer that we want to live your kingdom and seek you first and your righteousness, that even things that seem mundane and simple would be worthy of bringing before you, Jesus, our King, to ask you for direction and for wisdom. And we can do all that knowing that you will answer us. And so, Jesus, we worship you, we praise you, and we thank you. All of the glory, all of the fame is all to you in your name, that this whole world may be able to see that you are king.